The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, September the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we'll be joined by our new Northern correspondent, Freya McClements, and by Alex Kane to discuss the position of unionism in relation to the ongoing negotiations over the backstop and Brexit and everything else that we've been hearing about on and on and on and on over the last while. But first, uh, with me in studio is our political editor, Pat Leahy. Good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Um, Pat, you have a, uh, I suppose it, there's a tripartite byline here. You, Fia Kelly and Owen Burke Kennedy uh, write the lead story in today's Irish Times. And it's about Pascal Donoghue's plans for the budget in the light of all this uncertainty over Brexit. Yes, the thrust of this story, Hugh, the background to this story is that Mr Donoghue's been saying since, uh, for some months back now, that uh, the government would make a decision in September whether or not uh, it would prepare the budget on the basis of no deal or what would be the context or background uh, to, the, uh, to the preparation of the, of the budget. Not surprisingly, I'm told that uh, they have reached the conclusion that uh, they will have to prepare the budget, which which is to be delivered in just just over just under a month's time on the eighth of October. That they will have to prepare that budget on the basis of uh, that there will be a, a no deal. So there'll be a discussion about that in cabinet today. Um, it's the first, uh, the last meeting rather before the return of the doll next week, and it takes place just as the budget, the process for agreeing uh, the, the the budget is really kicking into gear behind closed doors in government buildings. And that will dominate a lot of what happens behind the scenes in government over the coming uh, over the coming weeks. But um, so, what, so what does that mean uh, preparing that it's a no deal budget? Uh, what does that mean in terms of spending decisions, I suppose, in particular? Well, there's two points, I, I, I think. Uh, first of all is I suppose part of the job of Minister for Finance at this time of the year when the budget is being prepared is always to... Tell his colleagues to shag off. I was going to put it more delicately than that, but precisely thus, yes. Um, and I suppose it strengthens his hand in terms of, of of saying no to his colleagues and their requests for further spending. Um, it, it also, I suppose, plays to that school of thought in Fine Gael, which holds that the most important political job for the party in government to do this autumn is to regain, as they see it, their reputation for uh, for fiscal prudence, for economic competence, which took quite a battering in the early part of the year with stories of overspending on capital projects. People will remember the, the, the National Children's Hospital, the inflating cost of the National Broadband Plan, continuing overspending in the health department or, or, or spending beyond their allocated budgets uh, in the health department. And so on, so that they there is a strong school of thought uh, uh, in in Fine Gael that as they approach an election, they must regain their credibility on that. And because the budget is, in a way, the biggest political megaphone of the year, it's a time when ordinary people who don't necessarily follow politics on a day to day basis sit up and take 
notice of what the government says because they know it affects them in their daily lives. And so they view the budget as an opportunity to get across that message of, uh, of fiscal prudence. However, that must also be balanced with the traditional Irish imperative that this is the last budget before an election. Sure, so we must spread out the goodies uh, insofar as, as possible. And you and many of our listeners will have spotted that, of course, both these, uh, uh, both these objectives are in conflict. They with are in, they're, they're downright incompatible. But in a way, it strikes me that in a weird sort sort of a way, the prospect of a no-Brexit deal at the end of a of, of no deal Brexit, I should say, at the end of October, uh, horrifying though it is for many people, is it maybe a little bit of a gift to Pascal Donoghue to achieve what his political objectives would be? Because if that if that threat was not there, you know, the economy is going well, uh, there would be you know really significant pressure for you know there's lots of places more money needs to be spent in the health service on housing, etc., etc., etc. There might be pressure for you know some kind of you know tax cuts of one sort. So it sort of removes a lot removes a lot of those political pressures. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it removes them entirely. Um, I, I, I've been writing in as much detail as I can manage about budgets uh, for for several years, and it never ceases to amaze me the extent to which individual ministers um, subscribe to the general proposition of prudence and uh, and and economic uh, 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 economic carefulness, uh, if you like. Uh, but uh, believing, but believe that it should apply to all the other ministers uh, apart from themselves, uh, because they, of course, have special reasons for an increase uh, in their budget and for an extension of programmes and uh, and so forth. What it does do is it strengthens Pascal Donoghue's defence against those spending demands that are coming across the table at him in the budget bilateral meetings, which will uh, which will kick off over over the coming weeks, and. So to that extent, you're right. It's it's a good thing for him. The threat of a no deal budget is 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 a help to him. If a no deal budget, of course, actually happens, a no deal Brexit actually happens, that will quickly turn into a nightmare mm-hmm. for Pascal Donoghue because, as the Fiscal Advisory Council points out in its report this morning, to which we also refer in our uh, in, our, in our front page report. That would probably open up quite a big deficit next year. Okay, and briefly, just what also about uh, the people who who aren't in government but who have a say in all this, which is Fianna Fáil? Yeah, and there was a meeting last night, uh, as I understand it, between uh, Fianna Fáil... Uh, finance spokesman Michael McGrath, their public expenditure spokesman Barry Cowan, and uh, Pascal Donoghue, of course, holds both briefs uh, for the government. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see how Fianna Fáil play this. Um, my guess is that they will uh, they will mirror a lot of what goes on in government in that uh, sub- they will subscribe to the overall goal of prudence, but will have specific asks themselves that they will want to see presented in the budget and which they can then claim to be budgetary wins for them. For them. One final point, I think, to note on this is that the way the budget process works nowadays is that it isn't just one big reveal of everything on the day so that we know largely the shape of the budget to come because of the summer economic statements and previous documents published by the Department of Finance over the course of the year. And the summer economic statement said budget will be about two, uh, the expansionary budget to the tune of about 2.8 billion. But 2.2 billion of that is already pre-committed in previous policy announcements by the government. So the budget day leeway is about 600 million. And what the government has done in recent years is that it has expanded that smaller budget day discretion 
discretionary chunk into something beyond up up to one 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 point five billion. And what I think will happen this year because of the threat of no deal Brexit is I think there will be downward pressure on that budget day expansion. So the actual budget won't be a whole lot different because of the threat of a no deal uh, Brexit. What will happen next year if there is a no deal Brexit uh, according to the government is it will simply, it won't affect its tax and spending plans for next year. It will simply run a much bigger deficit next year. It's the following year's budget that the squeeze really come on the on the government's uh, public finances. Okay, very interesting. Stick with us Pat. We're going to be discussing the, the, the renewed prospect of a potential Northern Ireland-only backstop. Right, and Pat is still with us. Uh, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by our brand new Northern correspondent, Freya McClements. Freya, you're very welcome. Great to be here, thank you. Um, also joined by Alex Kane, who's a political columnist and he's a former director of communications for the Ulster Unionist Party. Alex, can I go to you first? I was watching TV last night, primetime and RTE, and Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP MP, was, uh, was on. And he was all sweetness and light and honey about the efforts, the positive efforts being made by the Irish government to resolve the issues around the backstop and Brexit and how there was goodwill on all sides. And he was optimistic. Um, was that a front or is that uh, is that the DUP's position at the moment that they're optimistic about how this is all going to turn out? Oddly enough, I think it's a mixture of, the, of both because I think the DUP have now realised after after being, I think, let down by Theresa May when the, the backstop first came into the public domain and then let down again by Boris Johnson when he came to their party conference last year and said that he opposed the withdrawal agreement and opposed the backstop. A few weeks later went and voted in favour of it. So I think their fear is that in terms of can they trust, the question, can they trust Boris Johnson to always act in their interests? I think deep down, they may not say so publicly, but deep down they would have very grave reservations. And I think that means they know they now need to make sure that they, they, the relationship between themselves and the Irish government in particular is, is much better than it has been. Because the truth in all of this is that um, if you ask what is the the key mistake that the DUP has made in the past two years uh, since they they did the first confidence and supply arrangement with the the Conservative Party, I think that mistake was to cut off all relationships with the other parties in Northern Ireland, uh, to cut off the joint approach which Martin McGuinness and Arlene Foster had originally uh, signed up to indeed had sent a letter to to Theresa May saying they wanted to do things jointly, they wanted to talk to the Irish government together, they wanted to talk to Juncker together. As soon as the confidence and supply uh, deal was done, all of that was dropped because the they, they DUP, for reasons best known to themselves, went into uber-unionist mode, assumed that they controlled the government, the government would do exactly what they wanted, realised it wasn't going to do it, and now realise that Boris Johnson in the next few weeks has to make a very critical decision between his increasingly nationalistic party and the Brexit party and the interests of the DUP. And I think the DUP have now realised that in that, in that decision-making, they may not come out on top. Freya, when we talk about the DUP right now, are we talking about an entirely united party that speaks with one voice? Or within that, are there different perspectives and maybe different interests? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the inevitabilities about, about Northern Ireland politics is, is that nothing, if you like, is ever that united. You know, it's it's nothing really ever with, with, with one voice. So when we talk about the DUP, you know, inevitably there are different shades of opinion and, and, and sort of view, views within that. The, the DUP have sort of been saying very clearly on this, you know, that the party 
its MPs are, are, are united. You know, they're supporting um, Arlene Foster in terms of what she's saying about how pleased they are in terms of what Boris Johnson has been saying to them, that there, there, will, there will be no Northern Ireland only backstop, that that's ruled out. You know, so publicly, you know, there's this, this very united face that, that, that's been being presented. I mean, Jim Wells, for example, um, speaking this morning on, on the Stephen Nolan show on BBC Radio Ulster, himself saying, saying quite freely that he was, was open to some form of uh, p- potentially the, this, this all Ireland food standard zone. So, so with, with, within this, the, the agreed policy statements, if you like, you know, the formal statements that are, that are coming out from the DUP saying, you know, we've been assured by the Prime Minister that there's going to be no Northern Ireland, Ireland only backstop. When you break that down and you see what individual MPs are, are saying, what individual party members are, are saying, that's quite different. I mean, Nigel Dodds mentioning the possibility of arrangements um, on Newsnight a few ni- nights ago. You know, the question is, what might those arrangements be? You know, UVM Paisley Jr. saying, well, you know, the, the DUP aren't going to be thrown under a bus here by the, the Tory government, by Boris Johnson. And then this question, I mean, even Arlene Foster herself this morning um, on Radio Ulster, ruling out the backstop, but not ruling out a, a backstop. You know, so I, I think where we're going now is we're, we're going deep into the language. You know, it, it might be a backstop or a form of a backstop, but it might not be called a backstop. Pat, What's been going on over the last few days? And as if you open the British newspapers now over the last uh, 24 hours or so, you'll see more and more focus, the spotlight turning back to Northern Ireland where it wasn't for, for a very long time. And that's partly because some of the flags that were raised by, by Boris Johnson over the last week or so. Um, but it's also more broadly, it seems to be the perception, particularly among the Conservative press, is that if there is to be any solution in advance of the 31st uh, of October, it will centre on All-Ireland arrangements of some sort, whether they're called a backstop or not. Yeah, and this was first raised by uh, Boris Johnson last week, where he referenced the All-Ireland arrangements for uh, uh, for animal health and suggesting that perhaps, you know, that could extend into other areas. Um, and, and you're right, there has, seems to me, been, uh, you know, a sudden focus in London on the possibility of uh, a return to the Northern Ireland only backstop in perhaps an amended form with additional quote unquote democratic uh, controls on it, which presumably involves some sort of a role for Stormont. Um, Would I that think be a big concern for Dublin? It, a role for, in, in, for Stormont? In the previous. Uh, Northern Ireland backstop incarnation it was a concern for Dublin because it was seen by Dublin as uh, giving a danger of uh, an absolute veto to the unions who would just say no, no, no to to everything. But if there is going to be a deal, there will have to be some movement by, uh, there will have to be some movement on all sides. And partly I think this focus has come back to the Northern Ireland only one because there is the bones of a solution to it already on the shelf was already negotiated a lot of it how it would work mm. was uh, was thrashed out in the negotiations between the UK and uh, and and the EU and uh, so therefore you're not starting from scratch because of course given the time constraints starting from scratch and designing a whole new solution is uh, is not really uh, is not really possible the front of the Daily Telegraph I'm looking at this morning is could Johnson have the answer to solve the Brexit deadlock pointing again at the Northern Ireland only one that I see that part of it is the suggestion from Boris Johnson that there could be a bridge from Northern Ireland uh, to, oh, that one again. Uh, to Scotland. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that to listeners to, to judge the immediacy or, or, or likelihood of that particular aspect of it. I remain somewhat sceptical of it 
to be honest, I'm not sure. I think there will be serious negotiations on it and certainly people that I've spoken to in and around the Irish government expect there to be serious negotiations on this over the coming weeks. One of them was saying to me that he expects things will kind of go a bit dark now and that will be a good sign, a sign that uh, that there is serious nego- negotiations uh, in, in, in play. And I heard um, Tommy Gorman, a man uh, for whom I, I've, uh, whose judgment I have a lot of respect on these matters, um, was sounding very optimistic on... Um, uh, on, on Morning Ireland about it this morning. But as I say, I remain somewhat sceptical because I am not sure it is in Boris Johnson's strategic political interest uh, to do it. Yes, Alex, can I ask you about it? Because I share Pat's scepticism because it seems to me that um, most likely by far that uh, that there won't be a deal between in the last three weeks in October and that most of what Boris Johnson is doing is preparing himself for the inevitability of an election which would probably happen it would probably happen in November and that therefore everybody else is positioning themselves as well including including the DUP nobody wants the blame to you know in the if it's a game of musical chairs nobody wants to be left standing when the blame is being allocated and so that everybody needs to show willingness Boris Johnson for example needs to to some extent rebut the accusations which we heard from Amber Rudd most recently at the weekend that there isn't really a serious engagement and a serious negotiation so to be seen to be doing all this and to be seen to be willing is just part of the game as it's being played right now at this moment I, I think that's true. I, I mean, I know I'm naturally pessimistic in all of these things, but I do take the view that the more noise I hear from the parties and the more upbeat they sound, uh, the more I conclude that absolutely nothing is happening. You know, if it, if whether they, it's the going dark talks or so on, it's when you it's when they say things that you know where they raise questions, which basically they said this is a question which needs to be answered, and maybe people can address it. When they do that sort of thing, I I, I, I take them seriously. But when they do this, oh, we're, we're willing. We're obviously we want this to work and everybody wants a deal, I'm increasingly sceptical. And in terms of what Boris Johnson is trying to do, I think he has two problems. He has his own... um uh, party, which he's, he's pushing further and further to the to the right, he's, he's Nigel Farage biting on the scenes. He's even more right wing than him, and he has to make a decision about can he is, can he keep Northern Ireland, you know, complete integral inside the United Kingdom, uh, and get away with that in terms of his own votes. Because it's quite clear that the, the vast majority of, of of let's call it the English nationalists don't, don't don't give a stuff one way or the other about keeping Northern Ireland. But Johnson doesn't want to go down as a prime minister who loses power of the United Kingdom. So he has that to deal with. But on the bigger issue, which, which they now seem, the DUP and Johnson do seem to be trying to tie some sort of um, solution to this problem on a, let's call it a soft backstop. It's not going to be a hard backstop, but it's, it's, a, it's a backstop of some sort. The DUP want the uh, Stormont included in that, but that's its down. We've had almost three years without Stormont. I see absolutely no sign whatsoever of, of, of Sinn Féin and the DUP coming close to a deal. If a deal was possible, you know, in terms of a softer backstop, Sinn Féin would still be demanding as, as, as a very basic, the most basic thing they would want before they would do anything is a guarantee from the Democratic Unionist Party that there would be uh, an Irish Language Act. I don't see the DUP being able to sell that. So I think, yes, we're getting a few weeks of this chitter-chatter with, with the DUP certainly expecting an election with, with, with Johnson desperate for an, elect, an election. So all, all I'm seeing now, and again, maybe I'm, I'm being overly pessimistic, but all I'm seeing now is an awful lot of chatter without any sense of... Because if, if, if the DUP are saying they can buy a backstop, this if it involves electricity and agriculture, that they could buy that, it's still a bit of a U-turn for them, but it's possible. 
they need the assembly, and they can't get the assembly without an Irish language. And really, I mean, the DUP would have a tremendous sell, you know, to their own people. I said, oh yes, first of all, we've had the U-turn on the backstop, and B, we've had the U-turn on an Irish language. I think that would be almost impossible for them to do. Freya, do you agree with that? Uh, well, I, I tend to be more optimistic than Alex. Um, and Everyone um, is more optimistic than uh, well, me. <laughs> there it, are it dead does, people more optimistic than Alex. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that the opt- optimism is correct. I mean, in recent in recent weeks, I, you know, I, I've swung from sort of thinking that it was going to be all right to th- to, to and it'll be sorted out to thinking that, you know, what it, it is going to be no deal. And, and actually, in the last few days, I, I, I've begun to see what I think are potentially the glimmers of, of this being sorted out. So I think while I t- take Alex's points in, in terms of the, the difficulty of, of selling this, um, of, of the DUP selling this to its supporters, I, I think we are starting to see that that subtle change in, in language. And I think Nigel Dodd's mention of, of arrangements, I, I think, was really key because we are starting to see that, may, that may, maybe there, there is a way through here. And it, I mean, I remember speaking to one of the negotiators of, of the Good Friday Agreement and he talked about actually what, what you need in agreements is you need language language that gives you wriggle room you need language that gives you room room for compromise Jim Wells again this morning his language you know he's very much trying to sort of turn on the head of a pin here in that he's saying well th- this you know regulatory alignment over agri-food isn't really a backstop at all it's completely different because actually Northern Ireland would be in control of it not not the EU of it control would, would be in control so we're not ceding any constitutional change we're not we're not giving away control we're keeping the, the control so you know yeah, you know, it, it's complicated. There, there's a way to go. I, I think, I think there's maybe the, the glimmer of something because again, don't don't forget. I mean, we're talking about um, ideas of regulatory alignment in terms of agri-food. You know, a lot of those arrangements exist in terms of the island of Ireland anyway. You know, you know, the island of Ireland is is a kind of a single phytosanitary unit anyway. You know, in terms of I think things like agriculture, uh, given the the negotiations that have taken place already, it shouldn't be a huge leap to extend that and again maybe it, it's back to, back to language I think Pat I have to say I, I, I share Alex's scepticism and pessimism more than Freya's um, conditional optimism because when you look at what's being talked about there the complexities of the of, of, of all these areas around around all Ireland arrangements then you add to that the, the it seems to me very narrow possibility of the Assembly being reconstituted in this very short window of time and then on top of that you put the current environment in the House of Commons where you know let's not forget that the confidence supply agreement is effectively over because Boris Johnson is, you know, is twenty seats or more off having a majority government, even even with the DUP. And then you look at what are the rational expectations or objectives of Boris Johnson, which have to be to go to an election. Is everybody not really playing now for the election itself and the post-election landscape? Yeah, I mean, I don't hold with the view that this is all about the blame game, but certainly. That is in some some people's minds. I mean, Freya mentioned there Boris Johnson's uh, priorities. And I think if we try and examine what his strategy is, because ultimately if there is to be a deal, it will require Boris Johnson to strong arm the DUP into accepting something that he can then get through this existing House of Commons. And that seems to me to be a very big, uh, a very big ask. My view has always been, as you know, that Boris Johnson's first 
priority and to strategize is to prioritize and his first priority is to change the numbers in this house uh, change the numbers in the house of commons because he can get neither a deal nor a no deal through given the given the current numbers so he must have an election and i can see a couple of weeks of activity with people trying to come up with something in the north failing before the uh, uh, before the eu summit and boris johnson then throwing his hands in the air resigning sending somebody else and let another prime minister then a caretaker prime minister be it Jeremy Corbyn or, or Ken Clark or somebody who would go to Brussels ask for the extension and an election will take place in November which would then be fought by Boris Johnson on his preferred ground of being the only man who can deliver Brexit albeit at the end of January untainted by asking for the extension which he has promised since he came to office that he will not do but still able to fight that election as the Brexit candidate it seems to me that is what is most in his strategic interest albeit that it requires him to do something that politicians almost never do which is give up office voluntarily but that I think is his only way to fighting that election on the grounds most propitious for him and if I'm right about that then it means that these talks are unlikely to succeed. And Alex, if if Pat is right about that um, and if there is an election, is this not extremely dangerous ground for Ulster Unionism in general and the DUP in particular in that the two most likely outcomes, well, set aside a hung parliament, which is, you know, quite a, quite a possible outcome as well and might be good for the DUP and by their lights. But you'll either have a, a strengthened Boris Johnson with a comfortable majority, who's then in a position to do the betraying of Ulster, which Freya was saying everybody in Ulster, all the Ulster unionists expect in the first place anyway. Or even worse, you'll have a government probably of Jeremy Corbyn supported by the Scottish nationalists, which will be the most anti-union government in the history of the United Kingdom. Well, I, I think the, the ironic thing for unionists, when you, when you talk to people who've been in, in the game a long time, you know, politically and electorally, and have been to, to Westminster and so on, they, they will often tell you that from a unionist perspective, um, a Labour government has been more helpful to them because it, it, it's the old, I've forgotten who first said it, but you, you, can only, you, can, you can't be betrayed by an opponent, you can only be betrayed by a friend. And that generally speaking, the Labour Party has done less to unsettle unionism than to successive conservative governments have. So while there may be some fear of, of, of Corbyn and Scottish nationalism, I think they would actually, I think unionists would actually be more fearful of um, Boris Johnson coming back with a solid majority, but also having to deal with Farage's um, um, Brexit party, maybe some of them even in the House of Commons, where they, you know, who want this clean Brexit, this purest Brexit, and suddenly, well, what price are you willing to pay? Are you willing to let Northern Ireland go? So I think, oddly enough, you know, a thumping majority for a right-wing English nationalism would cause huge problems for for unionism or existential problems. But the other thing in terms of uh, of the election and how it's run. Democratic Unionist Party do have a problem. They have two things to try and explain. The first one is, well, hang on, guys, you did this deal with Theresa May. You, 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 you built this relationship now with Boris Johnson. Both of these guys have let you down. You said originally you would never have a back, backstop. Now you're talking about a soft 
uh, backstop. So I think the DUP will completely ignore all of that. They will push all that to one side and go back to what they do best, which is the knee-jerk reaction that you run this election basically on unionism has to get its best ever result because this will, in essence, be a de facto border poll. So it will be about maximising the unionism. The only message, it won't be a message about the backstop, it won't be a uh, you know, message about Brexit, it won't be a message about anything else other than the DUP saying on every single doorstep, we have to maximise the unionist vote to kill off the argument in favour of, of of a border poll. I think that is all. And oddly enough, I think that will help. The, the Ulster Unionist Party, my old party, has been all over the place. It doesn't have an alternative. The, the, the Progressive Unionist Party is almost dead. Jim Allister's TUV has no significant role. And at a moment like this, I actually think we're going back to 1986, January 1986 territory, and the post-Anglo-Irish agreement, I think you will see all of you possibly getting its biggest ever vote um, but all rallied around the Democratic Unionist Party. That doesn't solve the other problems because you still have the, the existential question about the Brexit and so on. But this election, for the, the DUP are not worried about this election, in, in my view, because the DUP have already factored in that this is a, they, are, they are running this election as a border poll. Nothing else matters to them. And they will, whatever happens in terms of the election result, they will deal with at that point. They expect to come back with 10 MPs. They expect Sinn Féin still not to take their seats. So from their point of view, things will, even if they don't hold the balance of power, there will still be that sense of normalcy from their point of view. Frey, it's very interesting to hear hear Alex say that. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me in the course of this conversation was if somebody was listening to it from a nationalist or indeed a non-unionist, an alliance or other perspective in Northern Ireland, to say, we haven't mentioned the majority of the people who uh, voted against Brexit in Northern Ireland who haven't been represented in all these negotiations in any way. We're not going to get into the whole Sinn Féin um, not taking up their seats in Parliament business. But what what is the impact on the, 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 the majority of the people now in Northern Ireland who are outside the traditional unionist parties and Sinn Féin, the SDLP, Alliance and the Greens? Yeah, um, essentially I agree with Alec in that this is where the interplay between what's happening in terms of Brexit and what's happening in, in, in terms of Westminster kind of collides, if you like, with the reality of politics in, in Northern Ireland. The reality is that, by and large, broadly speaking, any election in in Northern Ireland, people tend to vote on the orange and green issues. They tend to vote. It's about nationalist or unionist. And I, I'm sort of, you can hear me sort of slightly hesitant when I say that because I'm aware, for example, that there, there's been the increasing levels of support for the Alliance Party and particularly shown at, at the European elections there with the, the election of, of Naomi Long. But I think I think a European election, the context for that is, is always slightly different to what we'd be talking about here, which is a Westminster election. And what you've seen since the collapse of the Northern Ireland Assembly in January 2017, the turnout has increased and it, it's kept increasing on what we've seen in that increasing turnout but also an increasing vote for either the DUP or, or, or for Sinn Féin and, and quite you know, to put it bluntly, I mean, it's, it's, it's as Alex said, you know, it's because the DUP will say to people, look, if you want to protect the union, but actually not even so much protect the union, you need to stop a United Ireland, you need to stop Sinn Féin being in a position where they might be able to take First Minister rather than Deputy First Minister, then you need to vote for the DUP because we are the only people who, who, who can stop that. Right, I know you're both very busy, Freya and Alex, so we will let you go now. Pat, Freya's pretty bleak analysis there essentially says that every election, and certainly the one just about to come up in Northern Ireland, is essentially a border poll. And you were writing in your Saturday column about why a border poll is a bad idea. Well, up to a point, um, I think what Freya was saying is that, you know, it's just, we are seeing the extension of the Brexit effect from 
Great Britain and the politics of Great Britain, which is, of course, distinct from the politics of Northern Ireland, uh, in, into Northern Ireland, the Brexit effect of dividing and polarising and deepening divisions is and reinforcing those divisions, pre-existing divisions, uh, has, has, is extending uh, to Northern Ireland. The point I was making about the border poll uh, at, uh, at the weekend was that given the, and of course, uh, leaving here to go up to the Sinn Féin uh, thinking uh, in near Dundalk. Where so they're waiting no, for you with open arms up there. No doubt, uh, no doubt these subjects will be discussed. And I was critical of Sinn Féin for beating the unity poll drum with increasing fervour. I, I, I made the, uh, the observation, which uh, actually I made the previous week as well, but to which, uh, despite voluminous correspondence from, uh, voluminous and welcome correspondence from uh, many of, uh, many people online, I still haven't got an answer for. And that question is, if you are serious in talking to unionists about a united Ireland why do you uh, make Jerry Adams your spokesman on a united Ireland? And uh, as I say, I haven't received a satisfactory answer to that yet. But the point, the general point I was making was that given what the experience of the Brexit referendum has done to British politics and society, that we should think very carefully, prepare very assiduously and ruminate slowly and over a period of time before we would jump into a referendum here which has the potential, it seems to me, to have similar but even more polarising uh, Which is not here. to say that, I mean, we had a very interesting podcast a little while ago with Brendan O'Leary um, and he talked about the importance of discussing these matters in a more structured and sophisticated way than we have done so far. The, the, the I, issues I, yeah, of the I don't constitutional have, arrangements on this island. I don't have any dispute with that whatsoever, nor am I saying that people can't talk about a united Ireland. Clearly that would be preposterous. And the entire history of this country suggests that the issue will come on the, uh, on the agenda at some stage. What I was pointing out is that to repeat what it seems to me were the mistakes of the UK in jumping in to uh, a referendum for which they were utterly unprepared and whose uh, outcome either way or one, one way anyway was uh, was something that people had no firm views or plan about. To, to repeat the same here uh, with the United Ireland and let's face it, the divisions between Leavers and Brexiteers in UK in the UK are nowhere near as deep or as long seated, uh, uh, as, as deeply seated as the divisions uh, on this island. Uh, I I think to repeat that mistake would be uh, an act of folly. Pat, thanks for coming in today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks also to Alex and Freya for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 